Welcome to Everything Imaginable, a podcast for curious minds from KGRA Radio. And here is your host, Gary Cocciolino. Thank you, everyone, for listening to Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cacciolillo. And before we get started, I want to thank all my listeners for listening and also thank the contributors to my show, who are executive producer Candace Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, senior editor Amanda Steele, author of Ghosts of Me, binaural production engineer Damien Keller, author of Sounds Good, Sounds Great, and monthly co-host Jared Murphy author of It's Not Aliens, It's Worse, It's Us. And if you are interested in contributing to this podcast, go to my website, everythingimaginable2020.com, and you'll find a whole bunch of information on how you can contribute to the show. And now, without further ado, our guest for today is David Black. I almost forgot your first name for a second there, buddy. (laughs) Thanks for coming oh, thanks on. Thanks for having me on the show again. So, um, you have a movie you're called Badass Bunyip. And um, first of all, who's the guy with the mullet? That's me. <laughs> <laughs> that is hysterical. Um, so, um, what is... A bunyip. I, I know I never heard of a bunyip until I saw, you know, you starting to promote the movie. And, um, and then I had a guest on a couple of days ago from Australia. And I had mentioned that uh, I was texting you while I was interviewing him. And I mentioned to him, like, I said, oh, yeah, I got, I'm booking a guy now to do an episode on, on the bunyip. And he goes, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, you know, it's a, it's a weird cryptid creature that we have here in Australia. And, uh, and I did a little bit of research on Google, of course. And um, I don't know. I, I mean, I don't know much about it. All I know is it kind of looks like a um, half gorilla, half plant that bites off people's heads or something. <laughs> well, there's not really a lot known about the bunyip. Now, um, as a kid growing up in Australia, um, every kid had heard about a bunyip. In fact... Uh, one of the uh, big uh, things every year is the Royal Show. It's, uh, it's like a, a one-week carnival. And I remember as kids, we all got uh, piggy banks uh, from the bank that had bunyip, that were bunyip ones. And the bunyip that they showed on that was um, a cute uh, sort of uh, monster. Mm-hmm. But the reports of this thing is not cute. Um, they're, they're really are conflicting reports on what they look like. Uh, no two are the same, but basically it's uh, it's a killer. Uh, it's in water. It's aquatic, okay. and it's usually in still waters or billabongs or ponds. And there's been newspaper reports since about 1854, but the legends obviously go way way back. I believe uh, the Aboriginals spoke about them, and all of the reports are that it just murders. There's no personality, no rhyme or reason given. It's just a killing machine. As for what people say it looks like, the pictures just vary so much that um, there isn't one standard look. 
So, uh, yeah, it's our creature, but nobody knows what it looks like. And although there are reports of bunyips, my guess is that um, no one's had a good look at one because anyone that does got killed. That would explain it. So, so it's yeah. kind of like our version of um, like a swamp monster. Possibly, because I don't know what it looks like. I thought about it, and I did look at Swamp Thing. Um, I looked at the creature from the Black Lagoon, mm -hmm. and when it came down to deciding what our bunyip would look like, um, basically, because uh, mine's a no-budget feature film, I thought, right, um, I don't know what it looks like. I'll go with what I can do. <laughs> <laughs> so, so where does this thing come from? Uh, well, the reports that I've read have it um, in the same state that I'm in, which is Victoria. Mm -hmm. uh, I probably should have researched it more to see if it's right across Australia, but it's certainly known right across Australia. In fact, I don't live too far from where a lot of the reports come. It's from a lot of them come from a country town um, in Bendigo. I, I'd have to look it up now on the internet to see if there were far more than at Bendigo. Bendigo's maybe an hour and a half car travel from here. Up the road from me is a native patch of bushland and uh, it's it does have a pond in it. It um, does have all of the descriptions that you could have a bunyip. I, I started with the bushland before the bunyip before um, I did the movie because uh, I was on a tram one day and this could have been um, a film uh, a scene straight out of uh, a mystery film. But uh, I'm on the tram and an Aboriginal lady starts to talk to me very softly. And I didn't realise at first she's speaking to me. And then I just slowly looked over and noticed she's speaking to me. And she she's telling a story. And she was actually quite engaging in the way she told it. So she didn't get up in my face and start yelling at me. She just was slowly talking and then I've turned around and I've started to click in that she's talking. And as she finished her story, she points. And the, she's pointed to the native bushland. And what she's told me is that there's a sacred tree in there called the Nagaji tree, um, sacred to the Aboriginal. She's told me the history. And it's just at that point that we're passing it on the tram, she's pointed. And I thought, oh, my God, I've been passed here a million times. I mean, that little spot there I didn't even know was native bushland. I just thought it was like the parks because the, the the opening to it is very large park. There's a sports stadium um, to the right of it when you're going towards it is where I was on the tram. And that's a really built up area. Mm -hmm. That's multi-level. That's a bit unusual for Australia. And it's uh, four lanes wide or uh, it's rather wide for cars. Um, so that's very busy. And behind it, you've got a shopping strip. Uh, of, you know, uh, a very busy shopping strip called Fitzroy Street. And then when you look up, it's surrounded by skyscrapers. And, well, I did go up there uh, a few weeks later because it's like a five, ten-minute walk from home. And as I walk in, um, there is a sign saying it's native bushland. And then you find you've got a bush path with logs, you know, to set it out. And I thought... I really do feel like I'm actually in the country here. And I walked through it. And um, once you've taken four or five steps in, 
you're not seeing the skyscrapers and the cars anymore. You've got to get pretty much to the centre, actually, more than four or five steps. But you get to the centre of it and you don't see anything else but bushland. And if I'd just been dumped there, you know, an alien just zapped me there, mm-hmm. I'd be going, oh, my God, where am I? <laughs> you would think, you'd think you're in the middle of nowhere. But you take four or five steps from the centre, then you're starting to see the skyscrapers and everything. And it was in there that I thought, well, hang on, how did this happen? Did um, society just start building up and left this little patch? And that's actually exactly what happened according to the history. And that's when I thought, well, what if there were things in here that have always been in here? During the shooting, we found that that actually was the case. Um, I mean, it was mainly insects. I got bitten by insects that um, I didn't see, mm-hmm. but I have n- you, you, you go outside the area, if you get bitten by a mozzie in Australia, you, it, you, you're pretty fine. As long as you're not up in Queensland or something, you won't get dengue fever or something. But if you get bitten by a mosquito, well, you let the mosquito bite go away. With me, three months after being bitten the first time, um, the bites hadn't gone away. And um, I eventually had to go and get um, ointments and stuff to antihistamines and uh, anti-inflammatories. So it was all very expensive to get the, uh, the bites to go down. There's one on the back of my head, one on my back. And then I thought they were gone. And a few months later, without having bumped them or scratched them or anything, they came back and they keep coming back. There is something in that area that actually is whatever the native thing is. And I hated going back there to, um, in filming, we started filming two years ago. That's when I got bitten. But we, with the, um, with the lockdowns, there was then a whole year mm-hmm. in going back, uh, later on, I started to really, um, dread it. And I did get bitten up again, but by something different. And in my sleep, I ended up scratching my ankles and scratched them almost to the bone. And it took about six weeks for the scabs to heal. And I thought to myself, well, maybe that was lucky getting rid of all of that skin, even though it's not advisable. Because if it's anything like what hit me on the back of my head and my back, um, I've got a feeling I'm stuck with these for life. We did see some wildlife in there, but nothing unusual, just the usual magpies and stuff. But there is definitely something in that bushland, and there is a pond where there could be a bunyip. But I base my bunyip stories on the ones from Bendigo, two hours, an hour and a half in the car away. Mm-hmm. Um, does the bunyip have like a origin story? Like, did it evolve there, or did it come from outer space? Was it uh, something that resulted as a curse? Uh, that's the unusual thing. I've always loved the Aboriginal Dreamtime stories. Uh, Before I go further on that, I should point out that the stories of one tribe are not the stories of another. Um, The Aboriginal people are not one homogenous culture. So uh, the tribe that um, is in my area is called the Woiwurrung. So I haven't really studied their dream time much because when we watch documentaries or are taught in school, it's nearly always um, taught 
from the Aboriginals of Arnhem Land in the Northern Territory. They're the ones that um, in the 30s, 40s, 50s, the cameras came out and filmed them. Uh, our most famous Aboriginal actor, David Gulpilil, um, is uh, from, I believe, Arnhem Land. Uh, so when he's brought Aboriginal culture to the movies, doing real dances and stuff, that's him. So um, I don't really have Victoria to compare to, but from the Dreamtime stories I've gotten into from, uh, from Arnhem Land, they, they're usually quite deep and meaningful, and there's nothing like that with the bunyip. It stands out as something very, very different. Um, we put in, um, as, as a slogan, no rhyme, no reason, no chance. <laughs> the Aboriginal Dreamtime has a rhyme and a reason and a beauty about it. Mm -hmm. The bunyip's just cold, unthinking, unfeeling. Maybe that's because nobody's gotten close enough to one. You know, it's just this thing that's at a distance that kills. Whoever's close, there, there, there's no such thing as a bunyip survivor as far as I know. So, um, yes, this is a mystery creature. Uh, curiosity, to me, because it's still water, and they talk about billabongs, some of these pictures that they show can't be real because the bunyip can't be this huge Godzilla-sized thing if it's coming out of a small stream. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I would guess that size-wise, it's more like the creature from the Black Lagoon. How does it kill its victims? Nobody knows. That. There's uh, nothing to say anything much more about the bunyip than what I've told you. So it is a total mystery. Uh, when I look at um, other people's monsters, you know, the, I saw a monster map for the United States and it did have somewhere down near Texas, the Chupacabra. And then you, Mexico, move, some yeah. Yeah, you move somewhere else and you've got the Mothman. Mm -hmm. And everywhere you went, there is a monster, there are sightings, and there are stories. So you could, from the stories, you can put together a visual, you can put together usually ways it moves, ways it hunts, uh, personality. There's nothing like that for the bunyip. There In really fact, is. I don't... There, there, how did you make a movie? How do you make a plot out of something that has no story to it? <laughs> Ah, that wasn't too difficult because we, in a way, um, although the story appears to be centred around the bunyip, the story is more centred around um, our two main characters who go into this uh, uh, sacred Aboriginal site. In the film, I've got the, um, the swampland as a sacred Aboriginal site that you're not supposed to enter. In reality, you are allowed in there. So uh, we didn't break any laws. Now, there is um, a tree in there that's sacred to the Aboriginals, but this isn't the same as secret men's business or secret women's business. There are sites that um, no one but the initiated are allowed to go into. This isn't one of them. So um, there's a big sign that says it's the corroboree tree and people used to meet. So you really should be respectful but you're allowed to go in and see it, and you're act the sign is there because you're encouraged to. 
So I changed that a little bit to make it a no-go area. And uh, a lot of other things happen in there too, which I took from Aboriginal law, but not necessarily from uh, the Woiwurrung people. Uh, I mainly took uh, bits and pieces from different Aboriginal tribes to make more of a generic Aboriginal culture. So uh, I did that on purpose. It wasn't due to ignorance of the Woiwurrung because I could have actually just um, phoned up and gone to... Um, there's a few Aboriginal groups in, in St Kilda where I live and I just could have phoned up and gone along and said, can you tell me uh, about this and tell me about that? There wouldn't have been a problem because I was on a set um, six or 12 months before this shoot and there actually was someone from the Woiwurrung tribe on the shoot. Mm -hmm. And she actually did start telling me about her culture mm -hmm. and how thing, certain things work, like, um, like the totems and, and that type of thing. So um, she was so good at explaining. It was like the lady on the tram, um, so good at explaining these things. I could have done it, but I, I'm not, not Woiwurrung, and I don't want to put myself up as a representative of their tribe. Right. I have given a bit of their history, though. Mm -hmm. um, that um, that hadn't been planned. But um, I've got in the um, film, uh, when Dazza and Shazza go in there, what sets all of the problems off um, is that Dazza is disrespectful in the area. So I haven't done that because, hey, I want to be disrespectful. I want to make a film, you know. So he's not nasty. He's just stupid. And uh, he's disrespectful and he basically uh, clicks things off. I've got Shazza telling him off at one point and um, they're discussing Aborigines. And I pointed out what was very true. Um, I think I pointed it out in the movie that um, I grew up in this area and didn't see an Aboriginal here for 20 or 30 years. So it points out what happened to them. That's actually on the government website for uh, my area. And I'd never known that before. I always got told, you don't see any Aboriginals in uh, St Kilda because they all got taken away to uh, Maryland, which is about an hour and a half drive from here. And uh, many of them uh, died uh, from catching things like the flu and measles. Mm -hmm. So that was the standard story I was always told. And that might be true because um, I remember there used to be pictures of the uh, where they were taken and people made a fuss about it. But found another story that I put in there. Australians, we haven't grown up like Americans with this history of slavery. So while we've got a, a very terrible history and most become aware of genocide against Aboriginals, and you do see some photos of Aboriginals in chains, and you do see, hear some stories that are so terrible I can't really repeat them. Right. So we know that there is a bad history, but there's no history that we know about, about slavery of Aboriginals. And of all things, it's said that the men of the tribe got rounded up and uh, taken away as slaves and put on a sealing boat. You know, one for hunting seals. Mm -hmm. you go, nobody's putting this stuff together. So I thought, right, I'll put that into the film. When Shazza tells off Dazza for being disrespectful in the Aboriginal area, we'll I'll put that in. Now, that's the one of the only... There, there isn't much else there that is to do with the local tribe that I put in. 
and they're, they're really under documented but um a lot of the tribes are and there there there's a lot of books where people put this together or that together but when i um, start watching documentaries on aboriginal people i'll pick up on stuff that from one to another that you just don't um see put together hmm. for instance we those that do study start to realize pretty soon that um there's x number of aboriginal tribes an uncountable amount right across australia and that they had different languages and different cultures so they're thinking of it in that way and um at one point and i think it was research for the film i started researching spears and shields we don't have spears and shields in the film but i was researching it and of all things i start reading about a shield found in victoria and the shield the ochre they said came all of the way from the opposite end of the country up in western australia and it starts talking about a tribe that didn't go hunting ever they the tribe actually mined this ochre it was the only place in australia that you could get it mm -hmm. so we don't grow up believing anything that aboriginals had specialty um specialized uh oh the name's gone out of my head because i'm not a scientist but specialization of labor mm -hmm. we think of everybody being hunter-gatherers and doing everything for themselves. You want some ochre, you go get some ochre. You want a canoe, you make a canoe. But here's a tribe that didn't hunt. They just made ochre. But the next thing that came up was that the, um, that the actual wood wasn't from Victoria. It was actually from Queensland. That's going from Western Australia to Queensland, top end of the country, right across. And it was wood that was only found in one place. <laughs> and the Aboriginal tribe in that place were the ones that carved the shields. Now, it didn't talk too much about specialization of labor there, but it seems to me that that tribe um, would have been very close in what they were doing to, say, the tribe with the ochre. In other words, maybe this tribe did go hunting and fishing for themselves, but they spent an excessive amount of time um, cutting the right sort of wood from a tree. It also means that Aboriginal people um, understood that this ochre was special, that wood is special. So they're not just saying, oh, any wood, whatever wood. So there's a bit more sophistication happening here than what comes out in the films. But it got better. It said that the artwork on the, um, on the actual shield was not done in Queensland. It wasn't done in Victoria either. There was another tribe where the people were very, very good at painting. And by the time this shield has been to Victoria, elements have come from three separate places in the country. It means there's trade going from one end of the country right. to another. Nobody thinks in that way um, when they think of Aboriginals. So there is something quite advanced going on there. So um, in making the film, we learnt, I learnt quite a lot. Um, but uh, it also was a risky one. Um, in the film, we've covered Mimi spirits, which are from Arnhem Land. Uh, I probably haven't represented them true to form. But uh, what the are Mimi, they? Ah, 
Well, for some tribes in Arnhem Land, uh, Mimi spirits are from the dream time and uh, they are basically either created or teach people to hunt. So they're, they're basically teachers. They're very, they live in crevices, they're very long and thin, and uh, they only come out at night. So I, I really didn't research them a lot. I mm. liked their look and wanted to use them in the film. Uh, we've also covered uh, Kadicha men. Now, they're, uh, first off, Mimi spirits aren't from Victoria. I, I couldn't see anything um, in there that the, the local tribe ever painted them. I could be wrong on that, but I never saw it. Uh, the next thing is the Kadicha man. Now, the people in Victoria, the Woiwurrung, would certainly have had their medicine men and their shamans. But uh, the name Kadicha, once again, it's from Arnhem Land. Uh, we've got uh, a few uh, other little things in there, like the pointing of the bone. Now, I couldn't see anything that the local tribe did that either. So I did make a mishmash of uh, cultures mm -hmm. to make to make um, our little culture in this film. And one of the considerations that came up when we were doing the Mimi spirits is, aren't you afraid that you're going to upset the Aboriginal people? You're going to bring all of the uh, cancel culture people on top of you. Uh, people are going to talk about cultural misappropriation. And I looked at that and I thought, you know, when it comes down to cancel culture, I'm that offensive to them anyway, you know, that uh, <laughs> that if I actually did have a name, I would have been cancelled long ago. But uh, because I've got a, a very positive uh, view of Aboriginal people, I've actually collected up quite a bit of things. And one thing is a, a DVD I bought of um, a film that was by Bruce Beresford. I'll probably have to look this one up on the internet too, but it came out in the 70s, I, I believe. Um, and this film... Uh, Oh, the name's got the, um, the Fringe Dwellers. This film, um, Bruce wanted to do something for the Aboriginal people. So he took a book written by an Aboriginal. He got a cast where the majority of the main people hmm. are Aboriginals. So he's telling an Aboriginal story with a, a, a nearly complete Aboriginal cast. He's telling a story that is unique to... Uh, to the Aboriginal people that gives you a look in that an outsider probably would never see. And it went to Cannes. I think that's how you pronounce the film festival in France, Cannes or Cannes. Um, yeah. Well, anyway, it went there. And um, when it showed, it uh, says in Wikipedia, a number of Aboriginal activists walked out. And I thought, well, gee, if you can cre create a fuss on that, you create a fuss on anything. So I thought, right, we're going, no matter what we do, we're going to be damned if we do, damned if we don't. So at the end of the day, it's what's in our own hearts. Are we, um, are we aiming to do something positive? Um, and I thought, well, yes, I am, but I'm not making a documentary. Mm -hmm. I'm not making a feel-good movie. I'm not making... <laughs> We're making a funny movie. And is this story mine? Damn right it is. Because I grew up in Australia. I have a story too. And my story is that I grew up with Aboriginal legends of the Dreamtime. I grew up with uh, the stories of the Bunyip. 
I'm allowed to tell my story uh, and or make up my stories from my own perspective. So, yes, we knew that we were going to be sailing into um, problems, uh, only if we're big. Mm-hmm. If we're small, we just go under the radar and a handful of people um, attack us on um, on Twitter or on uh, Facebook. If you're big, it'll be huge. It'll be front page newspapers and twists, twisting stories and lying. So I also had to say to myself, no matter how, what people say, what would they take away from this finished film? And I thought, they're going to see stuff in this film they were never aware of before. It might be a mishmash of cultures, but there's also stuff that I've put in there that is true, mm-hmm. that is not a mishmash of cultures. Um, in fact, I'll get into one part of the movie. I don't believe it gives away too much. Before I get into it, um, at one point I was friends with um, a big-name Aboriginal activist. got to know this guy, and uh, I liked him a lot, and he said to me, I'm doing a, a talk tonight. This is 20 years ago. He said, I'm doing a talk tonight. At the time, the big um, topic in Australia was reconciliation. Um, we've been moving towards this um, goal for a very long time at such a slow pace that it's ridiculous. Um, but uh, he got up to speak about reconciliation. And um, first thing he said was, there can't be reconciliation. I'm going, what? And everybody's, yay! Because, you know, we, when you've got <laughs> strong followers, I don't think they listen. They just agree with you. <laughs> and they absorb what you're saying. So he said, there can't be reconciliation. I'm going, huh? He said, we were never friends, so we can't reconcile. You just came and invaded our country and took over and did all of these nasty things to us. Well, in researching the film, I found that it wasn't true. Everybody believes that, but it wasn't true. Huh. It was once again from picking up on one small thing. I didn't look up reconciliation. I wanted a name for our uh, Kadicha man. And I'd noticed that um, all around my area, in other words, from the very tribe that's in my area, and the same tribe that this Aboriginal activist came from, is the name Willem. I think that's hit your ears too. Doesn't it sound like William? Yeah. Yeah, there's um, a kindergarten somewhere close by called the Willem Bubbup Centre, and it's Willem this and Willem that. And I thought, well, look, I want—I don't want to go with the names that are commonly known because they're all, once again, from Arnhem Land, etc. So I chose the name Willem. So I start looking up where Willem came from. And the first guy that was called Willem, what had happened was... Um, I don't know exactly who it was. I don't know if it was Captain Cook or whatever, but early in the piece when um, when British colonial settlers are coming out with their ships, the head of one of the tribes said, who's the head of your tribe? And someone said, King William. They said, oh, he must be a big king. So they started calling their uh, children Willem. That's how they pronounced William. Uh-huh. At that point, they were friends. It's not a case. So I thought, right, the very tribe that's in my area, it started off fine. It just didn't go the, keep going that way. Yeah. Um, 
I might not know all of the details, but it's obvious that it did not keep going that way. So it did start off fine. In fact, there was a treaty for the area that I'm in that was, uh, you know, Melbourne was bought, I think, by John Batman for beads and stuff. And there were attempts. But on the whole, it went down. The way it went down is a genocide. But were they friends? The uh, ancestors of the tribe in this area um, and uh, the settlers? Yes, they were. So that was the first thing that came up at this um, at this meeting that I was at. Second thing was that, um, which is another thing that clicked me off for the film. So um, th this activist said, well, in trying to get reconciliation, they got together a number of Aboriginal elders and they got them to put together some, uh, some statement and they gave it to me and they said, here is a statement put together by the Aboriginal elders. And then he said, well, I looked at them and said, they're not my elders. That's not my law. The law of one tribe is not the same as the law of another tribe, and the elders of one tribe are the elders of that tribe, mm -hmm. not the other tribe. So I started to pick up on a lot of bits and pieces there. Still don't know enough about Aboriginal culture, um, and we probably never will because too much is lost. A lot of the languages are lost. Um, just too much is lost. But um, on the whole, I thought, right, I'm going to be at loggerheads anyway with anybody because nobody's going to um, tell me black is white and green is blue, etc. I know what I've seen. I know what keeps coming up in the research. I'm making my film based on my story. And uh, to make a good... It's a bit like... Um, with the United States, um, you've got a lot of Indian tribes. People know that these are different tribes and different beliefs, but you'll still get a horror movie where somebody desecrates the Indian burial ground. <laughs> it's a classic. <laughs> yeah. Well, which tribes' beliefs are they desecrating? Is it the Apache? Is it the Kickapoo? Who knows? Some of these... <laughs> The, the variation that you get with Indian tribes is probably not too different to the variation you get with uh, Aboriginal tribes. It sounds like the same story that we have here. Well, we haven't desecrated a burial ground. No? Right. No, we've, we've gone into... Basically, they've desecrated the area, but it's not a burial ground. There's the sacred tree. Actually, it could be sort of a burial ground. I'm not sure. Because there, there is uh, a body in there. But uh, then again, there's a, a bunyip. There'd be heaps of bodies. It's just the bunyip in this story, the Aboriginal people never had any trouble with it. They're like in harmony, more in harmony with the nature. It's the um, settlers that come in and are not in harmony with the nature and uh, just rip everything down until you've just got this tiny little piece of bushland surrounded by society that's encroached on it. And in there is a bunyip. And there is uh, some knowledge of this bunyip, which I can't get into too much because then I'm starting to give away too much of the film. Mm -hmm. But I can tell, tell people, you will see stuff in this film. It's not a documentary, but you will see stuff in this film that you don't normally see in films. Mm -hmm. I don't believe there's any horror movies or any types of movies out there 
with uh, the Kadicha man and the Mimi spirits and bunyips and all things Australian. That is pretty cool. I, I could just imagine some unwitting kid just taking a shortcut through the sacred land and just getting killed by the bunyip. Well, for a backstory, and I don't know how much of the backstory I'll put in the film now, I'll know in about two weeks because I'll be looking at the edit. Um, so in the edit, it tells me what went into the film. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I did put enough of a backstory. You don't have to do a backstory like this for um, a 90-minute schlocky B-grade movie. Right. Um, so you don't have to be like Game of Thrones and have 15 <laughs> books in order to depict uh, one line in a movie. But I did do enough of it. And in my thoughts um, were that things of people have gone missing over the years but more commonly most of the time uh it might be a derelict that goes missing uh a dog here and a cat there so the bunyip's been eating all of the time oh good yeah so um it, it hasn't been there for 200 years and not eaten and suddenly gotten up said oh i'm hungry i think we do mention in the movie that it goes nuts every 20 years because it's spawning time mm-hmm but, uh, yeah, so uh, going through that bushland, things have gone missing. So Didn't get into... Oh, go for it. Yeah. So are we... Uh, is the movie sympathetic to the bunyip? No, but... It, um, <laughs> actually, it's not sympathetic to anybody, really. Um, it's a schlocky movie. Um, it, it's not there to... Uh, I mean, you could say it's sympathetic to Aboriginals and that it mentions some of the history that I found that I'd never heard before. It mentions some parts of their culture that uh, really are unknown. Um, I mean, I know that they're true because I got told them by Aboriginal people. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, more of uh, in-culture things. Um, so um, in a way you could say it, but I don't expect... You see, now in today's environment... If you are not um, of a particular tribe, let's say um, a Zulu tribe, and uh, you say, oh, I love the Zulu people and you want to start doing something, you're going to be um, attacked anyway because you're not a Zulu. Mm -hmm. Actors are being told, no, you're not allowed to, like it started off with actors, blackface, not allowed to do blackface. Well, my first thoughts were, well, yeah, I can see the problem there if you're uh putting white circles around your eyes and big red lips. But that got to the point where people that had done a really great job of playing an African-American who were blacked up were being accused of blackface. That's not blackface, in my opinion. That's uh, acting. Right. If you look at the person, you cannot tell that uh, that is not an African-American. Mm -hmm. They've done a great job of acting. And uh, it's just gotten to the point where they're saying, well, only a straight white male can play a straight white male. And then, and if they want to get stupid, they'll say, look, you can't do a Scottish accent. You can't do um, an Irish accent. You can't do an American accent unless you're Scottish, Irish or American. I'm dead set against all of that. And I can see how stupid this is going. So I can see that there could be accusations of cultural misappropriation. But I want to point out to um, most of the world that's going to stand up and say that, that's if they ever see the film. <laughs> I happen to be Jewish. 
The um, stories of the Old Testament I see as the stories of my people. Mm-hmm. I'm not standing up, no other Jewish person is standing up and saying to Christians and Muslims, that is cultural misappropriation. Right. And think of, think of Christianity. Um, and I know that Christians won't come to kill me for saying this. <laughs> At least I hope they won't. Christianity was spread by forced conversions and war. And started, starting with Rome, with uh, Constantine deciding that uh, on his deathbed to convert to Christianity and just before it to make Christianity the, um, the religion of the Romans. Uh-huh. Well, the Romans had their stories of their origin story with Romulus and Remus and their culture and the gods. All of a sudden, they've taken their, uh, their origin mythology of Romulus and Remus and is deciding the Jewish mythology is theirs, that they came from Adam and Eve. <laughs> Whether Adam and Eve existed or not, that's my people's story. Right. The, first Christ, the first Christians were Jews, uh, but not after uh, Paul started converting uh, non-Jews uh, en masse, as many as he can, and not after Christianity was spread by the sword. So the majority of Christians that are around nowadays have got no no actual connection, no genetic connection, no blood connection um, to uh, those stories. And they certainly don't have a continuity because if they were Vikings who converted in 900 AD, they've suddenly adopted that. Mm -hmm. So I'm saying, (laughs) don't stand up and say you're a victim or somebody else is a victim of cultural misappropriation when the greatest cultural misappropriation of the... uh, of of uh, the earth is actually the one where uh, Islam and Christianity had decided that the Jewish books are theirs and even gone on crusades and uh, jihads to murder the Jews because of it. Yeah. No, so, I mean, if I'm going to shut up about cultural misappropriation <laughs> and they can shut up too, but more to the point... I, I had to come to terms with this concept of mul- cultural misappropriation from my own view because I love Jewish history. I, I never stopped loving it um, after school. Mm-hmm. So as soon as um, I'd left school and I, st- and I wasn't being taught Jewish history at school, I promised myself I'd read a page a day. Well, I don't read a page a day now. I use the internet. And I kept. I, I decided that I was going to start right at the beginning the earliest stuff, trying to read about Suma and Ur and Abraham. And I kept going on for years, and I didn't realize that I had virtually become uh, an expert in Jewish history. But I loved it. And as the internet came along and more information came out there, I started to find that I can't research very well, despite all the information, because there are people there putting nonsense up. So you get people like the black Hebrew Israelites that have decided that um, that someone like me, an Ashkenazi Jew, is a fake Jew. That we're not the real Jews, but they're the real ones. Or you come up against British Israelis, Israelitism, where all of these white supremacists decided that the 12 tribes are all white people, you know? <laughs> and you, you come up against all of this stuff and they're loud. They get themselves all over YouTube. They, they get themselves into Google for the searches to get um, to 
decent information like the biblical archaeology biblical archaeology society might have researched or the uh the universe hebrew university has researched to get to the proper stuff you've got to wade through all of these other people that not only have um stolen your history and twisted it but decided you're the fake and uh you're somehow the evil enemy that's trying to take over the world so i thought okay when it comes down to this, what is my, how do I come to terms with it? And I thought, once I tell you my story, it's actually yours too. The way you view it is your own business. So um, if the church around the corner wants to talk about um, the stories, like the priest at that church wants to talk about the stories of Genesis and feels that that priest feels he has a connection to it. He's got as much right as me. He doesn't have to have a genetic blood connection to it. The minute he got told that story, it became his in the way it got processed in his mind. And he has as much right to tell it because his time got taken up being told this. He absorbed it. So that is that priest's story. And when he tells it to his flock, he might have a point that he wants to make. But if they take another point away from it, if somebody else takes another point away from it and has a different view, it's not the priest that can tell this person, no, you can't look at it this way. I meant it this way. It's now that other person's story. The stories of the Old Testament, um, the very first ones of, um, of the Garden of Eden, of the Flood, they didn't start with uh, my ancestors. They're actually straight out of Sumer, where Abraham came from. Mm -hmm. Abraham and Moses are probably the two main people that are believed to have actually written down the histories. In fact, um, the where the Old Testament repeats a story and then it's different and people go, oh, to contradict. According to Josephus, he, when he writes the same things, and this is uh, around... 80 AD from the scrolls that were rescued from the temple. He goes, this is a story according to Abraham. This is the story according to Moses. The old uh, scribes accepted that there were two different views on the stories and those stories came straight from where Abraham came from. They would have um, originally before being carved into stone in Sumer uh, and being found thousands of years later. There would have been the stories around the campfire and whoever heard that story now becomes their own mm -hmm. for them to tell in their way. So is there cultural misappropriation? Absolutely not. That is like saying that somebody else has more right than you simply because they are viewed as being disadvantaged somehow. Well, I could have gone through my life believing I was disadvantaged because I got thrown out of home as a kid. I was actually quite abused as a kid and I don't really talk about that because uh, my family is still alive <laughs> and they don't, you know, it, it, it. one day I'd like to see resolution and I won't get resolution mm -hmm. by talking about it and shaming people. Right. But it is the truth that I was virtually a street kid at one point and then managed to get myself a boarding house room and I could turn around and have a chip on my shoulder and say I'm disadvantaged. But one day I realised that I wasn't going to get anywhere unless I took responsibility, that 
you know, in orders, you can't have a victim mentality. So I thought to myself, I'm not going to tell the government what to do with uh, various problems that we've got. But for me, I've got my approach, how I'll do it. And I read stories from people all of the time that had it far worse than me and became really huge. They're all over the internet nowadays. They'll start off with the, uh, the sad story of, and I'll read it and I'll <laughs> think, this person is brilliant. I read that Sylvester Stallone was living out of his car and was broke before he made Rocky. <laughs> I read that <laughs> Quentin Tarantino was couch surfing. He might never have made it, but things came through. And I'm going, this, uh, these are strong people. They didn't, the stories came out after. They didn't use those stories at the time to say, look at me, poor me. I deserve um, special treatment. I deserve a favour mm -hmm. because I just did six months living um, on the sidewalk, you know. So I looked at it and I thought, right, um, I'm not going down that path. So when it comes down to cultural misappropriation, um, comes down to disadvantaged people, well, some of the people that are great... Let's think of uh, Einstein for a minute, and I'm not him. What He was supposedly disadvantaged, uh, mainly because Nazis wanted to kill him. I mm -hmm. think that's a pretty big... He had to flee. Um, he, he, flee he, he went to America, where he was um, bullied. I mean, basically, they wanted to say he was a communist. And this was the era of McCarthyism, which we have again now, but in reverse. Yet, he still managed to shine through. And he's not the only one that um, had that came up against great odds and came through. We all have to find it within ourselves to come through. Now, I'm not saying I'm... I'm hoping this will be my breakout film, but let's be realistic. <laughs> A lot of people make a film and they believe it's going to be their breakout right. film. Realistic means if it gets big and a lot of eyes on it, the accusations will come out. Somebody will say, do you have a PhD in cryptology, cryptozoology, David? And I'll say, no. How can you talk about a bunyip? I grew up with the legends. It doesn't say documentary on it. I grew up with the legends. And uh, the legends tell us almost nothing about the bunyip. <laughs> except that it kills I believe they're also indestructible hmm. so we can't hurt the bunyip nobody's there's no reports of anyone ever having shot or killed one or brought in a bunyip carcass uh, or survived one so might be jumping the gun there but I assume that it might be indestructible <laughs> Do you think that the bunyip is real? Uh, I don't know, because uh, earlier, I mean, the reports, as far as I know, are pretty wide. Now, I did mention before that what most people don't realise is that Aboriginal people actually traded right across the country. So stories could have been passed across the country. Right. But it, it's certainly not internet days, and it's certainly not newspaper days. So... Um, Looking at it from that angle, could a story just have um, passed across um, across a wide area? I don't know. Um, 
I really don't know. Uh, but do I, do I believe that um, there are creatures we haven't discovered? Definitely, because there's a lot. I watched a, a, I'm going to come back to that point in the two seconds, but I watched a little documentary last night on YouTube. It was only seven minutes. And this guy uh, spent um, a week with a tribe in Africa that is still um, a primitive tribe. Mm-hmm. The, uh, they knew the language because um, the neighbouring tribes speak the la- same language and the neighbouring tribe um, are farmers and they've sort of come out a little bit. And the man started asking some very basic questions. This tribe is down to 1,500 people only. And uh, they didn't have T-shirts or cooking pots or any of the... Uh, that they obviously resisted it, but they're really friendly. Mm-hmm. And the guy starts asking questions like, where do people go when they die? And uh, the people in the tribe that were trying to answer... At first, they're giving very practical answers, um, like they're misunderstanding the questions. So if you say, what is the most important thing in life? The guy would say, meat. Mm-hmm. You know, when he said, where do you go when you die? Oh, we put them in a hole in the ground and then we go away, long way, way, way. <laughs> but eventually somebody understood the question. He said, they go up to the sun. That's actually a very common belief right across um i mean think about it you get outside of um the three judaic religions uh, abrahamic religions of uh islam christianity judaism where we're all influenced by um the old testament as I said and get to other religions that do the say people go up to the sky uh, you know heaven's up there mm-hmm. um on another one they asked uh, about ghosts and uh, the people said, yes, there's ghosts. They didn't talk about it too much. But um, this is a primitive tribe with uh, very little, con- not not no contact with the outside world, but very little. Um, and they've got similar beliefs. So getting back to the previous question, is it a possibility of, um, well, getting back to the previous question, now that I've mentioned their similar beliefs, how do they come up? Well, my belief is that not everything we see is of the same density. <laughs> yeah. Scientists, scientists have looked under a microscope and they see that not everything is of the same density. And they, they measure... The, the, um, science have said everything is made of energy. And uh, matter is energy under stress. It's much more dense. Energy is... Um, measured via vibration and the vibration is caused um, from the protons neutrons and electrons inside that um, are all moving around and we we measure everything we can measure color from the uh, vibration of color measure sound um, measure everything well if not everything's of the same density right then imagine um, if you're looking at something a bit closer, it looks like a sponge. Mm-hmm. Well, some things could, could be so small, they go through the holes in the sponge. I'm saying our reality, we're not seeing everything that's right in front of us. Oh, yeah. Right. So um, when it comes down to why haven't people seen a bunyip? In the realm of possibilities... 
Who's to say that something, we're told everything changes. Wouldn't that mean the rate of vibration and the density could change? Mm-hmm. Couldn't something have um, the ability to change their rate of vibration? We actually do change our rate of vibration uh, mentally. Yeah. Maybe not extremely, but um, you can change your rate of vibration um, through meditation. Mm-hmm. And it'll have an effect on your mood. It'll have an effect on your health, you know. Um, maybe some people claim that it'll have an effect on your body. And there is some sort of evidence of that, that uh, some people can levitate. I'm not going to agree that they can or can't, because that's a hard one. You'd really need some solid proof. I will say that I have seen Buddhist monks meditating um, I think it was 1957 where um, it's always said that they self-emulated. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever watched the video. Oh, yeah. They actually do. They don't actually self-emulate. Basically, they just don't move while the fire comes towards them. Have you noticed that they don't flinch? Mm-hmm. They don't... F- it's impossible to go through that much pain and not go... Ah! <laughs> they don't flinch. They're in perfect meditation. They, I believe what they say, there's for me the proof that they've disconnected their mind from something. They've changed their vibration that the pain does not make them go crazy. So there is some some vague proof there. Once again, I'm not saying I'm a scientist and I'm not saying this is fact. But it is possible that uh, maybe a bunyip um, is of is of those powers could shape shift, uh, not not shape shift, uh, change vibration, move into a different phase of reality that we don't see in the naked eye. Mm. Well, there haven't been scientists seriously go out to see bunyips. They, there have been scientists that have gone out looking for the yowie, yeah, which is now the yowie really is Bigfoot the Australian Bigfoot. Mm-hmm. But they haven't gone looking for a bunyip. They haven't done the sort of work that's happened, for, say, for the Loch Ness Monster. Why do you think that is? Uh, you think that there's something about the bunyip that they don't want people to know? The Australian government is hiding the bunyip? I sort of did a little bit in the film on that. It just touched on it. Um but no, I don't. I just think we've got a smaller population. I think um, I would have a, a devil of a time putting forward a theory like I just put forward to, say, um, a group who are Ghostbusters mm-hmm. and said, hey, can you bring all your equipment and let's go to this area where there was a bunyip sighting? Even if they believed me, if they believed the legends of the bunyip, they'd be stupid. Because nobody survives. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, though. There was always that one. Well, we don't have a David Attenborough. I think it was David Attenborough that would go out and he'd leave the cameras there and capture this great uh, wildlife. You know, the documentaries, <laughs> mm-hmm. they leave the cameras there and they come back and you've got these amazing pictures of uh, nocturnal creatures that almost no one sees or you get to see wildlife doing things that uh, 
you would never see in the zoo. Um, I just don't think anyone with equipment is going to risk their equipment and anybody that actually has enough belief is actually going to go anywhere near a creature where nobody survives. I would. Yeah. Oh, you should come out. Look, it might be a good enough uh, concept that you could get uh, a group in America saying, right, we're going to go to Bunyip Territory. I probably could put that together. Yeah, it'd be worth it. A lot of the newspaper stories. Um, I mean, if the say, worst the worst thing that's going to happen is I'm not going to survive. And even that in itself is a great story. Well, you probably catch. You, other, then, then you could make badass Bunyip two. Badass Bunyip two. <laughs> I think I just came up with the concept in discussion with yourself where people go to track it. <laughs> but I really don't want to go back to that area again, um, having been bitten up so much. Well, we, we, we had to reshoot all of the main scenes because um, I recast the main, um, one of the main characters. And that was uh, four to five days shooting over the, crisp, uh, over the Easter long weekend. We'd shot it originally over the Easter long weekend, which is where I got bitten up and got those bites that won't go away. Mm -hmm. When we came back, uh, we went to reshoot and then we went into lockdown. You know, so um, one year later, we were out of lockdown and we went back on the Easter long weekend again. And those four to five days that were just at this Easter, I hated the place. I liked it when I first walked in. I thought, great, it looks fantastic. But um, things were moved in that park. Um, when, when you're filming, you're looking where everything is. And uh, we didn't chalk anything out because we didn't want to do anything. But you know where to put this prop, where to put that prop to reset it. Mm -hmm. And for leaving at um, 5 p.m., and coming back the next uh, day at 9am, things were moved overnight. Things were different overnight. There was a lot... There's stuff that we'll probably never talk about. Some of it was human vandalism. You know, somebody with um, a texter, you know, I think you call them a Sharpie in America, mm -hmm. come and scribbled on stuff. And I'm saying to Gerardo, is that graffiti going to come out that's down there? Because it wasn't there yesterday. So there was that. But... There's other stuff. So, um, yeah. Um, I remember somebody was camping out in there, um, derelicts. You know, they'd just gone and camped out there. We were avoiding them uh, on the first day. There's no sign of them after that. They got eaten by the bunyip. Well, I don't think they got moved up by... Oh, no, I don't think they got eaten by the bunyip, but I don't think they got moved on by the police either. Uh, they just disappeared. Maybe it's the bugs. Yeah, yeah, that could have made them want to leave. So, so um, what kind of bugs are these that got you that that give a person a permanent injury? Well, they they've come up like mosquito bites, but they haven't gone down like mosquito bites. So, what is this? And is this a kind of like atomic mosquito? It could be a more virulent type of mosquito. Uh, it's certainly um, a bite that comes up large, will get larger if scratched, and itches. But 
God, histamine is gone from the body after a little while. You mm -hmm. mosquito bites do go away, and they don't come up as big as this anyway. They shouldn't re return. Do you still have it on yeah. the back of your head? Uh, no, but I've got one on my back at the moment. So the one on the back of my head, uh, no, not there at the moment. Uh, and that's the funny thing. I could scratch my head, go crazy. It will not come up. But um, despite that and it gone, it has come back like that a few times. So Maybe it could be that yeah. uh, Magellan's disease. Uh, well, it's not making me sick or anything. Uh, it's just a minor inconvenience. But it's one of the things I noticed. There may have been other things that came up that I forgot about because we started shooting this a while back. But um, look, that, that place really was native bushland and much bigger even when... Uh, there was a story in my family of, of my great-grandfather that he used to tell to my dad when my dad was a kid. Um, he used to go hunting there. He wasn't from St Kilda. He was from another suburb called Kew. And there's a tram line that goes from Kew to St Kilda. Um, it must have been the same tram line back when um, when he was a young man or he actually... Uh, we don't... We have gun laws in Australia, so this story is going to sound funny and it's quite shocking in Australia. It might not sound so shocking in America. But he used to take his gun on the tram. You know, he's sitting there with the gun. Mm -hmm. Get off... Um, the stop he would have gotten off is the same stop where the um, the park is, where all of our action was. And he'd go shooting and he'd shoot rabbits. There are no rabbits left there now. Uh, maybe he did a good job, but the chances are they got rid of him. <laughs> but he'd shoot rabbits. <coughs> and he'd come home with the dead rabbits on the um, tram. My great-grandmother would skin them and cook them up. So at one point... Um, you know, even when society had built up, uh, people would still go hunting. You couldn't have been the only one that thought of it. Hmm. But it's a very small piece of bushland now. And uh, for what is in there, I'm saying that whatever was there three, four hundred years ago is probably still there. We know that the tree, the Nagaji tree is over 500 years old. Wow. Interesting. But you're not going to go back there to shoot again? I did uh, for another shoot. I've, I've been there a few times for different shoots because we've got no budget. Mm -hmm. With no budget means I don't have a place to shoot. And if I want forest, I don't have to tell everybody, let's go two hours traveling up to the country and two hours back, which I would like to mm -hmm. because you can get some really amazing forests. I mean, there are some forests that would really bring everything up. But uh, because this is like around the corner, it just gives us a nice forest background with no one to uh, bother us. The odd person might come through walking a dog and they see that you're shooting and they're, they're fine. They'll, they'll either stop or they'll walk through, you know. Mm -hmm. But you don't have a lot of people going in there. And I don't believe anyone can stay in there for a long period of time just for the fact that it got bitten up in there. Hmm. So I'm not planning it, but we just don't have a budget. So um, I don't have 
rich friends that can say, hey, I've got a big house. You can use a couple of my rooms or my big backyard to shoot in. So for convenience, um, I've done uh, maybe five films there. <laughs> Have you ever, like, you know, like do the um, uh, like the Roger Corman thing where he'll film, like, three movies in a day in one set? Uh I'd like to. I've never had anybody that will allow me their sets, that we can go and use their sets. Um, at one point, I was trying to do more than just a shoot. Um, so when we were doing um, a short film, um, you know, every four to five weeks, what I'd do is I'd say, well, look, we can do a photo shoot too, right? Um, a lot of camera people will go and get somebody and get the makeup, costumes, sets, everything to do a photo shoot. We've got it all here. We'll do photo shoots at this. And then we do our shout outs from them because I made a lot of friends. Like, for instance, um, you might say, um, can you do a shout out for, um, for my podcast? Mm -hmm. So I'd sit down and I'd script something up. It'd be usually a joke or whatever. But uh, we finish shooting, everybody stays in makeup, whatever, and we go through the scripts. So um, it might be, you're listening to the uh, Everything Imaginable podcast. And then maybe somebody, monster hand comes up over the shoulder and go, ah! And the other person says, don't worry, Dave, it's just me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're coming from the set of Badass Bunyip 4. So we'll shoot maybe five of those, edit them up, put in special effects and stuff and get them off to the different people we did the shout outs for. Uh, that all sort of came to an end with the lockdowns because I have to think of that to do that. It's not a normal part of a movie. So we haven't done shout outs. Uh, we haven't done, um, it, we haven't done any new shout outs. We haven't done any photo shoots, but I'm starting to think now that I'm also not doing one day shoots. Um, when you, now that we've got out 35 or 40, possibly 45 short films, I don't need another short film to build up the uh, catalogue. Mm -hmm. I don't have to bring out a new one to say, hey, I've got a new one. Because most people didn't discover me on day one. They might have discovered my films after one year or two years or three years of making films. I can pull in the past ones and chuck them in. So I thought, what do we need to do? And I said, need better films so we say didn't you do your best already it's like we were making them one every six weeks what if i take everything that would have gone into three films and pump it into one so in one film i might have um, spent my pocket money to get the best makeup possible prosthetics etc and that might have been a thousand bucks out of mm -hmm. my pocket in another film i might have spent the money on a great prop and that might have been a thousand. There's always something that stands out that's your feature. I said, right, now we're going to do it over three months. I've got more time to sink into it, more time to think, more time to coach the actors to get a better performance. So um, that, that's where we're heading now. And I don't think I want to disrupt that by saying, hey, everybody, let's do a photo shoot. Hey, everybody, let's do some shout outs. It's time to, it's going to be a real struggle to try to make a better film than what better films than what we've been making. What is your dream film to make? 
uh, haven't got one. Um, oh, actually, no, I, I will get in. Killer Clowns from Outer Space. Have you seen it? Oh, yeah, it's a classic. The, the first thing that got me with that was how many different clown things that they thought of. I mean, the first time I saw it, you're being hit with something new every time from a clown doing, um, you know, shadow puppets to a clown making um, balloon dogs to the amount of different clown things they thought of. You're being hit with one thing after another after another. So I thought that is amazing. Second thing that got me, and this is what probably got everybody, is the special effects. They've used every type of animation you can think of, um, from uh, from your puppets to uh, giant costumes, to do this. To me, uh, um, filmmaking is story making. Hmm. And when you go for a story, quite often you go for the biggest, craziest story possible. Well, they've managed it. There's only so far I can go um, on uh, a small budget. I'm not going to be able to do Indiana Jones where, you know, you're, you've got all of these stunts and you're running from something crazy. And I mean, the money that goes into that, um, it's just out of my reach. What my dream is, is to have it in my reach like Killer Clowns from Outer Space. It could happen. It could. Um, if, you but, had, if you had unlimited <laughs> funds and money, what would you do? Uh, well, actually, that's a very good question. I actually wouldn't jump into Killer Clowns from Outer Space if I had the unlimited money because I believe that the money would go down the drain and it's not me saying I don't believe in me. In order to make Badass Bunyip, I made lots of short films, getting better and better and better with each one. I believe to do something with so many elements like Killer Clowns, to be able to have it work, I need to build up to it. Um, and I'm going to say something that's probably going to come out negative, because it is. <laughs> a lot of the films uh, that are coming out in the indie industry uh, in Melbourne uh, are absolute fucking shit now I'm a guy that promotes a lot of them now I don't go around and say that because uh, not because I'm uh, being dishonest but because I believe in encouraging and finding what was done well I don't want to dwell on what was not done well unless it's really bad, like the person happened to get bad sound, you know, that makes it unwatchable, or the person made this thing, this problem or that problem. Well, some of the ones that do stand out, the person did get some money. They've paid for the best poster artists you can pay for to have a great poster. They've paid for some fantastic props. They've paid for a whole country town to do a Western, you know, um, they've paid for costumes and then you watch it and go, what a load of fucking crap. Oh, I swore. Am I allowed to? Yeah. Okay. You can bleep it. You're fine. <laughs> I've seen it time after time because you can't put great tools or lots of money into the hands of an incompetent. You have to start 
with um, everything being solid at the very beginning. And that's probably before you even script your characters. So your characters, George Martin or George R. Martin, look at the amount of work that he puts into the background. Now, some people will never make a film because they put in too much work. They will never actually get on to, they'll find everything that will keep them away from actually making the film. Um, it's a case of deciding how much is needed. But the one thing that is needed is it needs to be solid. And I'll give you an example of something solid. Um, I was saying before that I was Jewish. One of the places that I quite often see in the news is the Temple Mount. Mm -hmm. There's uh, two or three mosques sitting on top of it. Yeah. Um, it's been through a, a constant war, you know, from even before Saladin. Um, the name Temple Mount is because that mount was put together solidly. I don't know if it was actually the exact same mount that was uh, the King David bought, um, but it certainly was the mount that King Herod, one of the greatest builders in history, made. He's the one that um, paid for the carving of giant ashlar stones to make a solid mount. You need your film to be as solid as King Herod's temple mount. <laughs> That's a tall order. Well, basically a lot of people have got uh, characters that um, are unbelievable. Mm -hmm. I mean, if somebody kills, I mean, okay, I've, said, I've got my bunyip, it doesn't think and it doesn't reason, but neither do insects. So it's a killing machine. But if you've got a human being that kills, people don't just kill. There's a psychology. Jason Voorhees does. Yeah. Um, now, he's good fun. He, he's very much like a bunyip. <laughs> no, no, he's actually got a bit more personality. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, I'm just saying that a lot of people get the psychology wrong. Now, I can understand somebody getting the psychology wrong in 1990 in a film you actually had to go to the library you had to borrow a whole lot of books the books were quite often out of date um, very hard to read uh, if you wanted to consult a psychiatrist which some of the bigger films did you could and some of the bigger films basically get the psychology down and people go oh my god i can't believe they got that right you got no excuse nowadays with the internet right is your character a narcissist? Is your character a sociopath? What is motivating your character? You need each character down. You need to think, would they really interact like that? You need a solid basis before you've got the film. Hmm. But not all, not all people act out of reason, though. And I think that's like the wild card that you can always throw in. You know, the, the seemingly normal person who has it all together just does something random. That's true. That's true. Uh, getting back to your original point about would the money go down the drain? Um, what would I do with the money? I'm saying that I have to work up to it. I'm going to go back to when I started as a cartoonist, as a little kid. I don't believe I ever became a great cartoonist. Now, I did uh, work my way up to a pretty high level you know, being the editorial cartoonist of the truth. But I look at many of my fellow cartoonists 
and I go, this person's a genius, right? Why? Why are they great? And I look back at my, my old work and I would start drawing like a lot of people did, but I didn't plan the drawing out. So I didn't actually sit there and measure and go, right, this should be roughly this size or that size. And I think we've all done that if we're not professionals. Right. So you start drawing a face and you start drawing an eye and you go, my God, that eyeball is fantastic. It is perfect. But it's not sitting in the right place. And the nose now is too small and the chin's not right. And then you realize that's a flat eyeball that way. It should be pointing three quarters of the way. You can spend money and get this great piece that will not fit into the jigsaw puzzle. There are so many pieces that must fit together like an engine that are working together, all right. together, to move that car forward. And I'm saying, you must understand the engine. You'll understand that engine over time by doing lots of things. So, yes, my fantasy is, please give me a billion dollars. <laughs> but the reality <laughs> is, I don't believe, I believe it will work smoothly, more smoothly if my next film maybe has... A $25,000 budget, uh -huh. not, not millions. Now, in 25000 you can't do killer clowns from outer space, but you'd be working with a lot of paid makeup artists and paid prop makers and trying to get them together, working together as a team. You get a little taste of it. You work out what went wrong, what went right. You go, right, I won't do that next time. You'll get lots of um, rudimentary groups in your film working together. And then... From uh, $25,000, you go, right, I could handle 100000 Right, I can handle 500000 Have a look at how many names are at the end of some of the big uh, blockbusters. Um, at one time, I was uh, blogging and um, writing movie reviews. So I got given all of these uh, press passes to go to uh, red carpet events and stuff and press events and one of them had the rock in it and um like a king kong monster mm. you know i can't remember what it was called we, i brought a friend along and she said you are not getting up and walking out at the end of the credits and we watched and up comes the special effects in fact um this was more pronounced in pikachu when the special effects came up i go oh my god there, it's three lines across and about 10 deep. There's 30 people there. And I go, oh, that's just the first unit. Then up come about the same again. I go, but that's first unit. And she goes, no, 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 no. First unit for this. First unit for that. First unit for this. Second unit. Second unit. Second unit. When it came up, I go, what did they do? Have 250 people. Uh, doing the special effects, and I read up about it later. Oh, we had a team of 50 people just to make the fur move on that one character. You want to coordinate something of that level and have, I mean, you could, if you're an amateur and you've got one person working on the fur moving, what if that fur moving works from one angle and doesn't work from the angle that you've got your, your guy in the suit doing? And you go, ah, 
what do we do now? Can we, can we flip it? Can we twist it? Can we do anything? Oh, no, I've just spent a shitload of money on getting fur move, and I've got the man moving in the suit. I'm going to have to spend more money to make one person fit the other. That's one tiny thing. Um, you pick mistakes in uh, major movies, or people pick mistakes all of the time. I'm just saying that the person that uh, goes from making a no-budget movie, if they were lucky enough to be given a couple of million bucks... The money's going down the drain. Mm. Well, I think that's true of any craft in any art. We all start at the bottom and hone our crafts and work our way up. Exactly. Now, I also have to look at my age. I'm 57. You're still young. Still young, but the amount of time I would say, um, if luck just dropped in my lap and it all started happening now i'd say it'd be 10 years to work up to something like that so that's a 67 year old man Mm -hmm. i think i might just have to be happy to uh to be making smaller movies for for now and make the best movies that i can and as enjoyable as i can Uh, i might end up being getting a budget but would I be able to do Killer Clowns? Um, I don't know if a 77-year-old guy is going to be making Killer Clowns. I don't know. It's possible. <laughs> but, uh, but to be realistic, um, I've got this one coming out. And at the moment, for me, when I, I've seen an old assembly edit, not a current one. And I looked at the old one and said, my God, this is going to be something when this comes out. Um, nobody's going to believe we had a small budget, though some people will probably be able to pick that the bunyip's not the greatest. Um, uh, they'll pick some some things, but it's going to be able to be shown on an international level, and it might be one that actually is the breakout film. If not, it's not the last film I'm doing. I'm going to do another one. <laughs> not necessarily a bunyip one and I'll, and I'll do another one after that and I'll keep doing them and uh, hopefully improving. I'm not going to sit back on my laurels saying, Hey, I am the great uh, producer. I'm the great actor, the great script writer. It's like, no, um, I'm not, not terrible either, but um, there's just something about certain geniuses that we should never compare ourselves to them. We should only take inspiration. Right. I totally agree. Completely, you know. But also, you just don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what the future is going to hold, you know. Like, I mean, I I started this podcast as just a basic hobby, and now I have a pretty good audience. So you just never know. And you're building. Yeah. I'm doing the same as yourself. Bit by bit, I'm building. But when you say you never know, look, um, I've got uh, another movie coming out. It's not a... uh, We've put that on hold on the editing to finish off Badass Bunyip. Uh, but uh, the other one's called uh, Toxic Alien Zombie Babes from Outer Space. Now, we had no idea that um, NASA, I think it is, or uh, the American government mm-hmm. is about to release information on UFOs. Oh, yeah. Technically, yeah. it would have been timely to have that come out right now, but it's impossible. It's uh, three hours worth of footage. It's almost finished. Um, but it would have been timely. Um, but there are a lot of UFO films. But what if there was an actual bunyip attack? And God forbid there is. I'm not saying I want to see anyone hurt. 
But what if there was a bunyip attack? Just as we get our movie out, it's going to drive traffic right to it. You never know. Maybe somebody says, oh, I've seen a bunyip and they capture one on film. And just by coincidence, it happens to look like ours. Right. You don't know. Yeah, uh, things can happen where you suddenly end up in the spotlight. Have you considered so, doing Toxic Alien Babes versus the Bunyip? No. Um, once Toxic Alien Zombie Babes is done, because that's, uh, I think that's going to get up to three and a half hours, that could be cut into two movies, really. Mm-hmm. Possibly... Um, it, it, we're going to have to look at the, the sheer size of it. Um, but because there's so much there, we wouldn't do that again. It was a lockdown film, which nobody will ever believe that we could get such professional footage during lockdown, but there are professional camera crews all around the world. So while one place is in lockdown, another place isn't. When that place goes into lockdown, another one isn't. Mm-hmm. So we're able to send scripts out all around the world. Um but, uh, yeah, when that's done, it's so big that I don't think there'd be um, a follow-up. At least I wouldn't plan on one. Um, badass Bunyip, I'd, we, I did have a plan on a follow-up on the theme. But um, I, don't, I, I can't follow up and come back. I, I can't say why I can't do a follow-up. You'll know later why I couldn't do an exact follow-up. But, uh, but uh, yeah, um, no, I'm just really doing different movies each time different genres uh, badass bunyip's a horror and it's bloody and it's gory and it's schlocky toxic alien zombie babes is um sci-fi mm-hmm. I, are you going to do a musical i am oh Jesus, i shouldn't have answered that <laughs> uh, i've got i've got music and dance heavily featuring in a film we're shooting in October. It hasn't been announced. Hmm. It's not a musical, but it features very heavily music and dance. Wow. I wrote a musical. Yeah. I don't know what I happened tried. to it. I have it somewhere, I, mean, I hope. <laughs> a musical would be so much more difficult than anything I'm doing. Think of the choreography on top of having to write all of the new songs. Um, I'd like to keep things at a doable level. Uh, One of the other problems in the local indie movie industry, and I'm only talking Melbourne, but I keep being told things are very similar all around Australia and all over the world, that one indie film industry, like whatever's happening in Melbourne, when you start to really dissect it, who's who, who's doing what, and what the personalities are and what the beliefs are, you'll find that if you go to Texas, their local indie movie industry has got the same personalities, similar beliefs, uh, that we're all throughout the West very interchangeable. Right. Um, And one of the problems is grandiosity of thinking. I know people that script stuff that is too big for them to film. Yeah. And they will not come down on it. And it's, why won't you? It really, there's a level of narcissism involved in that with the grandiosity and the thinking. I know people that fuck shit up beyond belief. I'm going to give you an example. Now, don't 
I won't mention the name of the person, but on my um, site, um, my YouTube site, you might find this one-minute uh, video, um, which uh, is a narrated video um, about a girl going from embracing her dark side. I don't know if you've seen it. No. It's only one minute. It's one of the best. Um, for And it was a half-day shoot. Um, originally, it was written for somebody else. They harassed and harassed me. I just constantly get Facebook messages all, all night until I gave up and uh, gave them what they wanted. They kept asking me for a script for a one-minute uh, film. They said, oh, there's a one-minute film. And I said, so I eventually came up with it. And in coming up with it, I worked out, how can this be shot? There's a, 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 a public holiday on Sunday. How can we shoot this? Where can we shoot this? How can we do it cheaply? So I gave it to them. Once they had it, they said, right, when um, our creature of light starts to emerge, I want her to emerge from an egg. Now, what? Now, look, if we put a light behind it and we get this white body stocking, you know, and they're in it, it'll show, you'll see them inside this. And I go, oh, that sounds really good. I said, yeah, it'll only cost uh, for this material um, $100. And um, I can get somebody to sew it and we make the egg. I just need a place that's got a roof, uh, a ceiling that's uh, 20 foot up because of the shot. You know, I was just about to film this in the park. There's a hundred. said, when they come out, I want them to spread their wings and I need 20 foot tall wings. Oh, it's quite doable. It'll only cost you this. By the time they got through, I said, you can't do all of that and have a one minute film. said, look, I want them to appear with uh, magical runes over them. We'll get five makeup artists in. They'll do. They'll paint them all over my body. The grandiosity of thinking got to the point where somebody else, who was also just as narcissistic, said, "You know, I can make the wings automatically work. I just need to buy this engine that costs about two hundred and fifty at the uh, local shop, and uh, it just uses these gears and that." And I just break the wings that you buy and move it. By the time all of this grandiose thinking had come um, <coughs> and they decided um, that they were better at scripting than me and they'd changed this line and that line and they'd chuck, cut this bit out, I took the narration that I'd done that was ready to go and did it myself. Came out three years ago. They're still talking, um, four years ago. They're still talking about making the movie. Grandiosity of thinking can destroy stuff. Got another friend currently said, gee, I have to have all of these um, actors in it. Named actors that um, are on a lot of the indie movie, indie local indie films. But they're also international stars. You don't get them for free. So, yes, they. you've got people like Jane Badler, who was in V. You see her on a lot of indie uh, local indie films from Melbourne. Uh, you see Roger Ward, uh, you see Gypsy McPhee or Andy McPhee. By the time he got his list together, I said, you know, you're going to have to pay for this one to fly to Melbourne. You're going to have to pay accommodation. You're going to have to pay that. Do you have X number of thousands of dollars? He said, I'll get it. By the time he'd finished, he um, had he was going to need $45,000. 
you're going to pump $45,000 into a short movie. Nobody even buys shorts to start with. <laughs> you know, so not meaning to knock him, but he, he was one of the more intelligent and reasonable of uh, local filmmakers. They get grandiose. Now, there are a couple that are rich kids. They're not really kids. They're like 45 years old, the rich daddy, rich mummy, who are multi-millionaires. It's different if you're rich because as a hobby, what car do you think they buy? You know, a Lamborghini, $500,000 car. Of course they can pump 500000 into a film. What do you <laughs> they're, they're rich. Mm-hmm. That's what rich people do. But uh, they don't necessarily make good films, by the way. They make some of the most <laughs> crappy things out, which is why I know that, I, yes, I, you asked me what film would I like to make, and I said, yeah, I'd love the budget for Killer Clowns from Outer Space. I'm not going to uh, lie and self-aggrandize and say that um, you can just jump into the deep end and make that. You can get your advisors in that might get you there. But you still have to know how to coordinate everybody. Otherwise, you could get five, you could get that budget and a movie gets made and it is that great, but you've got no uh, real involvement because you had to stand back because you didn't know what was going on. <laughs> Everybody else made it and they just chucked your name on it. Yeah, I can see that happening. So um, before we wrap this up, where can my listeners find you? Oh, I'll give you my YouTube channel. Um, that's probably best. Now, when it comes down to finding me, uh, I've thought about this a lot. Um, because of social media, it's a house cards. If I, Every time I've given a social media address, let's say it was for my band um, 15 years ago. Well, my band's uh, social media pages, especially the Facebook ones, have been removed. There's dead links everywhere. People can lose their Facebook account, have it locked, and not be able to get that unlocked um, through the normal process. They, and they won't even know why it was locked. YouTube can remove somebody's account. Twitter can remove somebody's account. Because I'm doing this as a hobby, I haven't gotten a web page or paid for a web page. I'm not going to. It's a hobby. But I will put um, Badass Bunyip for free on YouTube. Cool. So I'll give you that address. But there's no guarantees. Um, They say that when you build something on social media, you are building your house on rented land. Yeah. It's true. Yeah, it is true. You can lose that house like that. They just come and bulldoze it down because it's on someone else's land. So social media has proven itself to be very unreliable, very open to just removing anyone's account, locking your account, punishing you, whatever at any time so um i would like to say hey you can find me here basically um for now it'll be the youtube channel cool so i will post a link to the youtube channel in the notes of this episode so my listeners can check out your shorts and whatever else you have on there that would be fantastic (laughs) well thanks for taking the time to be on today oh thank you for having me back always you're always welcome back And uh, hang on for one moment, and I'm just going to play the outro. Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable on KGRA Radio. 
You can reach Gary at everythingimaginable 2020com or email him at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. He's also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can buy t-shirts, coffee mugs, and other merchandise to support the costs of producing this podcast. Click on the merchandise link at the top of his page, www.everythingimaginable2020.com. Oh yes, I almost forgot. You can buy his book, Enlightenment Guaranteed. It's the only book on Zen that you'll ever need, and it's on Amazon. It'll change your life, because remember, everything that exists was first imagined. Hey, if you love what you listen to, don't forget, rate, review, and subscribe. <laughs>